My agent called, he said he got some interest in my script I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot I even got a famous classic case of writer's block Get it out of my head Get it out of my head Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. Joining me as podcast producer is Dapper David Bax. Hello, David. Hello. Hello. How, how are things looking? I see you looking worriedly <laughs> at, the, at the keyboard. Yeah, because I had changed something before, but it looks like everything's going according to plan right yeah. now. Yeah? Uh, yeah. Right. We're, we're recording. Okay. We'll find out later when I call you crying. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for having me back. I'm, I, you know what I love is that da- dapper David Bax is looking dapper again. I, because I had fallen out of practice. Out of dapperness. I I'd gotten, to, you, you gave me that nickname because I always showed up looking nice. <laughs> and then we started doing these like recording, like, you know, Saturday mornings and, and Sunday, or like early afternoon, I was showing up in t-shirts and stuff. And this morning... I was getting dressed. I had to go over to Paul Goebel's house first, but I was like, you know what? Goebel's going to get the full. He's going to get the full dapper. dapper did he because you, I'm coming straight here? Did he give you? Did he give you crap for that? Because uh, no, I he gave me Paul. crap for. I got this nice, not, you know. Not, I don't. I'm not, I'm not like all dressed up, but I tucked my shirt up, put on a tie. I got looking nice. Walked out. Um, and brushed against the side of my car and Aww. got oil stain, like some sort of oil stain Aww, on my... sorry. So, yeah, uh, Paul gave me crap about that. Aw, well, he was probably secretly happy. I'm going to take your picture because that's how dapper you look. Oh, there thank you go. You. There you. you go. We also have a dapper guest with us. It's Dapper Day. Um, we have John Zarzerni. Oh, no. Remember how well I said it? Mm-hmm. Okay, John Zarzerni. That's it? John Zarzerni. You said it. I'm going to say it again. John nice. Zarzerni. Yeah. And uh, John is a principal at... Bellevue Productions, which is a feature film production company with a slate of projects that include Warden, which is set up at New Line Cinema, Christo, which is set up at Warner Brothers, The Lion Hunters, set up at Warner Brothers, and Capsule, set at 20th Century Fox. In addition, John had Her Effing Sisters, set up at Amazon Studios, Snatchback, set up at Voltage Pictures, and has Sons of Soldiers set up with The Donners Company. He's also produced The Operator, an adaptation of a popular web series called Marble Hornets, which is currently in negotiations for distribution. And he recently opened a management wing of the company, focusing on clients in the action thriller and sci-fi genres. So I'm just thrilled to have you here. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Me. Thank you very much. You know, the first thing I have to ask you, okay, mm-hmm. because we, we mention this all the time, like, it's set up at, it's set mm-hmm. up at. You've got all this huge slate of projects here, all mm-hmm. set up at major companies, what does that mean? What does set up mean? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, it can kind of mean one of two things. What, it, what set up tends to mean is that, uh, although I guess this isn't uh, guaranteed, um, is that money exchange hands. Now, that might be an option, in which case it's uh, money, uh, you know, certain amount of money, generally lesser amount of money, exchange hands, and it was optioned for 18 months. That option can be, you know, depending on the contract, picked up for another 18 months, another 18 months. Um, Usually there's an end term to it, or the project was bought. 
So in the case of Christo, which we set up over at Warner Brothers, um, that was optioned. Um, but uh, the since option was not picked up, and so it's since gone into turnaround, and we're doing some interesting stuff with that. Um, but you know that those rights return to the writer, the, or the, the the screenplay returned to the writer. He he's the owner of it. Now, optioning is sort of like renting it, right? Correct. You give a certain amount of money to take it off of the market for a while, mm-hmm. or the, the production company does. Mm-hmm. Um, with the agreement that that production company will now take it out to try and get it made. If they don't get it made, if they don't go get the money or, or the people mm-hmm. on it that they need, mm-hmm. it goes back to the writer. And that's what you mean by it being in turnaround? Yes. I mean, in this case, it was a studio, not a production company. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing to, that we kind of glossed over a little bit is that in the option agreement, let's say, I'm just going to make up a number. Let's say so you got a your, your script was optioned for 18 months uh, for $5,000, right? There's probably something built in there uh, that at least one more extension, which is, you know, at the end or before the end, they can give you another $5,000 and they automatically renew it, you know, whether you want them to or not. That's it, right? So that's uh, 36 months, three years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there might even be another step in there, but that tends to be 18 months, 18 months. I mean, you can, those terms are, 18 months is not, is the standard, but it's by no means like, the only number they can make it six months you can make it two days if you wanted to um and um and then but there's also something built into that wherein uh basically a certain point there's a purchase point so let's say it was the five grand option and then you know 10 months in a year in they got a movie star in and they want to move forward and they can buy it at any point they want to Okay, so they could just buy it because they feel like owning it and they don't want to let it slip away or they could be heading into production. Generally, a first day of production is the last day that they would not purchase your screenplay because obviously going into production without owning a screenplay is not a very smart thing to do. So there's something in there. Let's say it's five grand and it's something written in that they will pay you two hundred thousand dollars. They pay you two hundred thousand dollars. They own the screenplay. So that's usually built in there. But if that option is not, um, if they don't, if they don't pay you the five thousand dollars again at the end of the eighteen months, the, all the rights for the screenplay return to you. So in the case of Christo, Warner Brothers didn't continue the option, so therefore the rights returned to Ian Shore, who wrote the screenplay, and now he's free to do with it whatever he would like to do with it. Does that make sense? It does make sense. In in a case with Warner Brothers, they're huge, right? Mm -hmm. So what would they be looking to do with the project uh, to make it successful? I mean, they've they've optioned it, they've Mm -hmm. they've rented it, they want to do something with it. What are they trying to do? Find the right actors, directors? Initially? Yeah. what, What are they trying to do with with it that would make it like uh, they're trying to get a make it a sale the simple i mean you know what attracted them initially or what what do they do once they option it what What do they do once they option it because again it's sort of like now what once they option it um you know i can certainly speak to that case they that was something that i think they definitely saw as director bait Mm -hmm. um and so they went to you know the directors who they felt like you know were the people who would get it made who were very very a-list people and that was what was interesting to them was getting it. It was they felt it was a director-driven project. Take something like uh, American Sniper. Um, that would be probably more actor-driven. I think Bradley Cooper actually. I think his production company was the company that had optioned uh, Chris Kyle's book, and um, you know they were interested in doing that. So for somewhere like. You know, somewhere like Warner Brothers, they're like, okay, that's, that's actor bait. You know, that's something we want, you know, Bradley Cooper really wants to star in. So we're going to try and get this for Bradley, get to a place where we feel comfortable making it. So in the case of Krista, that was more director driven. So, but the, the essential answer to your question is they want to get it made. They want to get it made. Yeah. I mean, like they don't pick up things, you know, 
it's funny. Um, I was listening to one of your podcasts with Jake Wagner earlier, and he was talking about how you know how they used to sell a script a week, which is definitely the case when I came into the business. Um, was you were selling, a, you know, I would say, you know, there was a million dollar screenplay million dollar sale, you know, at least once a month, if not once every two weeks. Now there was one for 2014. Um, and even that one, you know, um, what people do a lot nowadays, and I don't know if this was the case in the case of, of that thing, Mina, I don't know what the scenario was, but you'll see things reported as million dollar sales now. Um, and it'll, or they'll be like sales for the high seven figures. And what'll actually, what that actually means is if all steps are included. So they're saying it's sold for $500,000, but that's only, they actually, the writer only saw $200,000 up front. And they're saying, well, if they decide to exercise optional rewrites, and then the movie got producers a production bonus, and then if he had sold credit bonus. So, so ultimately they can make millions, but, but really what the initial sale was, was. It's, not as, it's not as great as it used to be. And so my point in bringing that up in regards to Christo is that it's one of those things I think where, where studios are very much about getting movies made. And if they don't see a relatively straightforward path on that level, then they're not going to throw a lot more money at the project, especially if it's not you know, a project that a movie star or a really high ranking director that they're very excited. You know, they'll keep something going if it's going to help a relationship. But they're, you know, if they don't see that that clear path, or it's a clearly, very clearly branded IP that, is, that could be valuable for them to hang on to, they're not going to do it. And they, you you said uh, one of of the meanings of getting things set up mm-hmm. is that there was an option agreement. Yes. So what's the other? The other one would be a purchase. So that in the case of Capsule, which we set up over at Fox, that was outright purchased. So Fox now owns that screenplay, um, and so it's I think I guess theoretically that project just set up at Fox forever and ever and ever. Um, you know, although th- how much that means is, is indicative of the amount of uh, things going on with that project. So, I mean, the simple answer is something set up at a studio means that the studio has put money into it and is interested in making that movie. That's what it basically means. Now, how realistic that is that is, is really up to being in the know and figuring out what's going on with that project. So, as a producer mm-hmm. on the project who helped guide the sale, I would imagine, Mm -hmm. then uh, what's your role now? Now that that studio owns the project, you're the producer on it, Mm -hmm. um, and you brought it in and you have the relationship with the writer, what would be your role now once somebody actually purchases? You know, uh, basically the the role kind of continues in terms of what you're looking to do is, is, is basically the the same idea that you guys had coming in, you know, uh, with what you wanted to make in the movie, you're going to try and keep pushing that forward. So there's not a director on board. You're going to work usually in every single project I've ever set up. I've worked with a studio, uh, rather I should say a producer who has a deal at that studio. Um, you know, so if you look at, you know, there's a lot of, I'm, I'm assuming that your your listeners are familiar with the, are they familiar with the, the days that producers have studio deals? Does that make sense? Tell us all. Go for it. Remember, so, we have a lot of writers on. We only have right. a handful of producers and you guys are so mysterious. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I can get, you know, producing is, is kind of this ineffable idea that like there's a lot of different ways to be a producer. Um, and, but, you know, in terms of studio deals, what, you know, a, ma- a big studio producer, uh, you know, a studio will want to keep that that producer at that home studio because they want that person to keep bringing material so take someone like dan lynn 
uh, over at Warner Brothers. Dan used to be an executive. Um, he left to become a producer. Obviously, had a really good relationship with Warner Brothers because he used to be an executive there. They made him a, uh, a producer. They usually call he's a producer on the lot. That's like the trade term. That doesn't literally mean they're on the lot. It just means they have a deal with that studio. Um, so Dan has a deal with Warner Brothers. Um, Dan has since made you know the Warner Brothers movies, uh, Sherlock Holmes, the Lego movie, Gangster Squad, movies like that. And so basically they want Dan because they want Dan to bring everything to them first. It's a first look deal, I guess, is what what they would what the general kind of term would be. So Dan, you know, his primary focus, not to speak for Dan, but a, a person who has a deal at a studio, their primary focus is to bring material into that studio to keep that relationship going because what the studio studio is paying for is generally I mean it depends on the deal how rich the deal is the deals were pretty rich in the 90s for example you get you know nowadays they generally cover your overhead so they cover you you having an office they covering that producer having paying for some assistance so on and so forth um, sometimes you know they even have a little bit of a fund built in a development fund built in although that's not as prevalent anymore but those people basically the studio said these are the producers we want to be in business with and so if i bring a project to a studio i'm going to tend to want to get a producer who has a deal or at the very minimum has a really like chuck roven doesn't have a deal at any studio chuck roven produced um man of steel american hustle is one of the biggest producers in town he actually doesn't have a deal at warner brothers despite producing all the dc movies but he obviously has a good relationship with them um but you know so i you bring it to chuck he's a really Warner Brothers or, you know, Dan Lynn is a, is a good example of someone who has, has a deal at Warner Brothers. Obviously, Warner Brothers wants to wants to t- utilize that deal, so they want to put him on projects that they want to buy. So, but anyway, kind of move back on your point. What I do is I liaise with that producer who is now on the project, whether or not the studio put them on the project, or hopefully more often than not, I've already brought the project to that person with an aim. So you look at something like Capsule, that was a scenario where Hutch Parker, you know, a friend of mine who's an executive at the time there, Aaron Ensweiler, heard about the project, got excited about it because he knew the writer, um, read the project loved it, reached out to me, said, I'd love to bring this into Fox. And so we took that into the executives at Fox. They got excited. I mean, this is a very short version of a longer story, but they got excited about it. It ended up getting sold to Fox. Um, and so we already have a director on board, the director, Mateus, whose idea it was. And Suey's already on board. And so now we're talking about, okay, you know, how do we get this movie made? How do you get a movie star on board? Working with um, you know, the team over at Hutch Parker um, with, their, with their situation in terms of how do, we, how do we move this forward at Fox? How do we make this a movie that Fox wants to get made? So have you, uh, as a producer, I'm, this, so uh, would you ever love something enough where you go like, okay, I can't seem to get it up, uh, get it, get it produced, sorry, get it uh, set up. <laughs> I just said that. I'm really sorry. What, no one would have. Nobody st- would have. Yeah, you're the I, one who has I, the dirty mind. It makes me giggle. <laughs> okay. I can't seem to get it set up with producers that have deals. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I believe in this project mm-hmm. so much. I am going to try and independently make it. I'm going to try and independently finance it. I'm going to try and get, you know, directors and, yeah. and actors on it. Have you, is that a route that you've ever gone or would consider going? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's tricky because if you were purely looking at it as a studio play, mm-hmm. it's going to be tr- harder. I mean, for me, a studio movie, um, you know, Capsule is kind of the 
the outlier in that sense because that's something we're looking at doing for 20 to 30 million dollars which for a studio like Fox is not very much money relatively but for the independent world that'd be huge that'd be a lot of money so if we're going to do it independently it would have been much less money but generally when I'm thinking for studio plays like I'm like okay we're going to try and get this done in the studio it tends to be more expensive so 60 80 million dollar kind of movies because that's the kind of stuff that they're excited about if you look at there's just not that many under 50 million dollar studio movies getting made and a lot of the ones that studios do release are acquisitions things that were made outside of the system um so you know whiplash or imitation game or something like that those were not funded by actually i don't remember the exact situation on imitation came when the one students came in but that was funded to my knowledge by black bear and whiplash was funded by bold films um and so you know Probably, if it was a movie that I thought I could get done independently, that would be probably be something I was pursuing, um, if not first, then in parallel tracks. So Capsule was actually something we looked at getting produced outside the studio system. We got a lot of interest. We didn't know that we'd be able to do it studio-wise because it was not, you know, it was in the 10 to $20 million range. They're not particularly excited about stuff like that. But, you know, the executives at Hutch got really excited about it and Fox got excited about it because they saw a way, I think, to turn it into a limitless, to turn it into something that, you know, you put more money into it and had very very catchy high concept hook so they got excited about that um but yeah absolutely if it's something i believe in i'm going to try and find a way i mean we're still talking about ways to get capsule sorry to go ways to get christo done that's not warner brothers anymore but you know we're finding ways is there a way to do this for under 50 you know originally it was like 80 million dollars plus is there a 30 million is there a district nine version of the script so absolutely it's something that you know if you believe in a project and you love it you're going to keep funding for it forever uh, what is the waiting game like? Okay, you've, you've got all these, these projects set up. Mm-hmm. How long is the waiting game? Uh, uh, before it it's going to get to I screen. I mean, you know, I've had a, a small independent movie made, um, but beyond that, I've never had a studio movie made. I mean, I feel pretty confident, um, you know, in, in Capsule getting made relatively quickly. It's a script that was on the blacklist. It's, you know, people really love it around town. It's very easy to understand, but there's no guarantee. There just isn't anything that's a hard thing to explain. You know, luckily, a lot of the writers I work with, they understand that and they know that, but it, it's, it's a hard thing to understand. Honestly, it's one of those things where it's, the only thing you can do is is keep moving forward, keep getting more things going. And, and, and hopefully, you know, you're work, you're not sitting and waiting on the one project you're working on 20 other projects. So now how, how much do you work with the writer before mm-hmm. you even approach a company that might have a deal, et cetera? You know, my, the way that I get into things as a producer is pretty, to my knowledge, relatively unique. Now I'm not saying the only person, only person who does things this way, but, um, I don't think it's not it's not normal and for reasons that I'll explain um, you know the only time I get involved in a project obviously there might be an exception at a certain point um, I only get involved in things from the ground up so if I read a really great script and this is not I'm not saying that I would never do it, but I'm saying it's been my experience, and I'll explain why. I only get involved in things. I'll read a great. I'll read. Let's say I read a great sample, and um, I'm like, "Wow, this writer is very, very talented." And then what I'll do is I'll meet them, and we'll get in the room, and I'll say, "Okay, here's how I operate, and here's what I'm looking for." You know, generally sci-fi, action, horror thriller, that kind of stuff. You know, this honestly stuff that I love and also stuff that tends to be more commercial. And then we'll start talking about ideas and we'll come hopefully either I'll bring them an idea, uh, I'll bring them the idea, it'll be an idea that, they, or it'll be an idea that they pitch me in the room or it'll be an idea that we come up together with in the room. Um, you know, there are exceptions I can point to in some of the stuff I'm working on, but every single project I think that I've set up at a studio was something that something came together that way. So I'm generally involved um, before, you know, at the kind of um, 
you know, the conception phase. So you're saying that if you love a, a script, you're going to go, okay, I, I see that as a great writing sample. Mm. Now let's start from page one with something completely new. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, I, you know, we haven't kind of gotten to the management phase of my business and, you know, it's something where I, I recently, I, I read this amazing script and it's not a slam dunk commercial thing in the way that like something like capsule would be where it's like really high concept, easy to understand. You know, you see the you know, 10 second TV spot. This thing is more in the vein of Michael Clayton or Chinatown, but it's an amazing script and it's some, but that's something where I'm coming as a manager. I'm like, and I'm not going to be producing that one per se. You know, I'm just, I'm coming on a pure managerial capacity and saying, okay, this is something I think, you know, I think this is a hard road, but I think we can, this is such a great, this is a great sample. And, you know, I think people could read it and really love it and say, okay, this is something I think we could get, eventually get made because it's so good. It's at that high level. But generally, if something is a commercial slump, on a, on a pure, honestly, on a pure, um, you know, kind of like if it's a pure commercial slam dunk at that point, you know, generally it's already been kind of exercised at that point. By the time, if I read it, I'm like, okay, I, I'll put it to this. I'll put it simply. If I can add value, I'm interested in adding value, but I'm not interested in getting on a project and simply attaching myself. And that's that I'm interested in being a scenario where I add value to a project. And so, you know, honestly, you know, if I read something and I'm like, wow, this is incredibly perfect. Like this is done. It's not the kind of, but it's at a high skill that I could never operate at. Like it's a hundred million dollar movie and, you know, I don't know that I would just attach myself because I made a phone call to one of my friends. You know, I probably would try to sign the writer if they were unwrapped. But generally, when I, you know, I mean, honestly, most of the people I was meeting up until recently were when I was just purely a producer, were manager or rep by someone else, and so it's it's rare that I was the first person to see something, or certainly the only person to see something. So, you know, but really, what I look for are people who have great voice, and you know, I look for people who have great voices, and it's been my experience that if something is good but not great um, that trying to rewrite the thing from scratch is difficult because that person is probably already attached to a version of what the, the, the concept is and generally concept I think is the most important thing and if you don't have that concept there from the get go you're in trouble I, I kind of put it like this um, if you're building a house you can build the most beautiful house possible get amazing furnishings and look great but if you built it on sand it's kind of it's there's no point to it you know, I've had scenarios where, you know, have had, you know, if, I would put it this way. If you've got a really, if you've got a script that is good, not great, but it's got a really strong commercial concept, that's something that you have a better chance of selling, that something's been beautifully written, but the concept is not particularly commercial. Does that all kind of make sense? It makes sense. Uh, you're working with one of my writers right now, Patrick Mann. Right. And uh, Patrick, boy, he's been doing so well. Mm -hmm. Two years in a row, semifinalists on Nickel. One page international last year. Mm -hmm. uh, is one of the most downloaded scripts on the blacklist, which yeah. is the more co the competition area of yeah. the blacklist, not uh, the studio version of the blacklist. Um, and just an all-around good guy. He's in one of my private writing groups, and I love, love, love him. Mm -hmm. um, you recognize yeah. talent, thank mm -hmm. God, and and have uh, and are now working with him. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what's going on with his projects and what your what your strategy is. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's something. Obviously, I want to speak to to some degree. Uh, I'll, I'll speak as openly as I can because I don't want right. to give away anything because Patrick's not in the room. But I think met Patrick, loved him, loved his writing. And so this is somebody that, you know, I, I want to work with. Um, you know, the really interesting thing about you know, Patrick is a, is a fantastic writer. First off, I, I read two scripts of his. Both were phenomenal. Um, one in particular, I was like, wow, this is really, really great. They weren't on 
particularly commercial. Yeah. I think there are movies that in the '90s could have gotten made because they kind of fell in that Quentin Tarantino kind of kind of vibe. Um, one in particular that I'm thinking of, um, but they weren't they weren't slam dunk commercials. I think I know what would happen if I sent them to producers around town. What they would say is, "Wow, this guy's really talented. Cool. Well, love to read the next commercial thing he's written." And because he's really talented, but he had there was no commercial slam dunk. And so what Patrick and I are doing is, and this is a good example of how I operate, met with him, really dug him. Uh, and so um, what we're doing is we're meeting once a week and we're, we're just brainstorming. We're, we're pitching ideas back and forth to each other. And then when we get a really great idea, we're going to start kind of the way that I operate as a producer is we, uh, you know, first we do character bios. We do all that kind of stuff together. And then, and so Patrick, I'll, we'll talk about in the room. Patrick will write it, send it to me the, the day or so before the meeting. I'll read it. We'll meet up the next week. We'll We'll do, we'll do notes on it, and then we'll start talking with the first act and the second act and the third act and all that kind of stuff. So by the time Patrick goes off to draft after like six to eight weeks or so of outlining, he'll have a full outline. Then he goes and writes it, and every, he'll send me every 30 pages of the first draft, read the, thir- the 30 pages either of a call or a meeting to discuss, give him my notes, he'll write the next 30. And so by the time the first draft is done, it's not even really a first draft. It's more like a second draft, should, should we say. Then we'll do notes on the second draft, and we don't do the 30-page thing at that point. He just sends me a star draft do the rewrite and do their, so we get to the third or fourth draft and at that point we're like okay this is this is really good this is good I'm pretty sure there's still issues but it's gotten to a point where I, I feel like I'm so close to the material that I can't do it and we do what I, what I like to call the circle of trust so then we take it out to six to eight of the close writers who I work with who I've been working with for years we take it out to them they've all done this themselves we, we email it to them within two weeks or so they give me their notes then Patrick and I would meet up and I would go through all the notes and if one person said oh I don't like this thing and we don't agree with that then we can ignore that. But if three people said, hey, your main character is kind of dull, or I don't understand them, or, or you know, I understand, no, I was not, I'm not going to say they're not likable, but they're not interesting. Interesting is what's more, more, more important than likable. Sure. Um, and so then we're like, okay, we got an issue. How do we fix this issue? We do a rewrite. We get, and, that, and then at that point, if, you know, in the case of Patrick, there's no agent on board, then we would go out to the agents who I feel are the right fit for him, get them reading, then get them on board, and then go out to the producers and so on and so forth. Obviously, it depends. If we're doing something that I think is the under $10 million, under $5 million range, then we're not going to go to the studios because there's no point. I mean, we'll go to the studios to, to make them aware of a really talented writer they should, they should know about who can write commercial material. But we're going to go and we're going to say, okay, let's get this done with the smaller places. Let's go to the places that are looking to make three to $5 million movies or under $10 million movies. Well, you know, let's maybe package, get a director on board. Well, if we're doing above that, then we're like, okay, let's go to the studios. But that's kind of the process. It's very, I've been doing it for, you know, I've been doing it for four years as a man, sorry, four years as a producer full time. I was doing it for three years before that part time. And so it's something I've worked through very closely. And it, to some degree, it comes out of, you know, having worked on a TV show and seen the writer's room aspect, which is kind of the, the stringent outlining comes out of it. And also of my background of, you know, I came into town, I wanted to be a writer, I went to film school for that. And so I kind of, I speak writer to some degree. Um, which is useful, you know, in the room. I don't dictate. I'm like, no, I want to do this. It's a conversation between us. But I rarely, you know, I'm not a producer who, this isn't just the way that I, you know, I came out of development. I worked at Ampian Way and places like that. But I don't, you know, I don't read a draft and then say, here's my notes document. For me, it's a conversation, which again, I think comes out of being in the writer's room on a TV show where that's kind of how that tends to happen is you have a conversation like, okay, you know, it feels like our first act is a little boring. It doesn't, things don't pick up till page 30. Instead of just saying, 
you know, let's cut 15 pages out and just go right into 30 as quickly as possible. Like, okay, well, let's, let's figure out how we do that. Let's figure out how we make the, that first act as interesting as possible. How do we deliver on the promise of the premise? And so it's a conversation, and that to me has been the thing that has, has worked quite well. Which show were you on? I was um, a writer's assistant on a TV show called Castle. Oh, oh yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was in the first three seasons of that. Oh, cool. I'm not seeing it in your bio. Sorry about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. My apologies. <laughs> I, I, it, kind of focusing on the management producing aspect yeah. of it. So, so um, you know, you came out here as a writer, you were mm-hmm. a writer's assistant on Castle. Mm-hmm. So um, what is it that appeals to you about the production, the, the producing side of it, um, as opposed to the writing side of it? You know, I'll be honest, you know, I did the producing. I, so I wanted to be a writer. I went to NYU, um, got my first job at Appian Way, worked there for three years, decided I wanted to be focused on the writing full time. Um, I won some scholarships when I was at NYU, the Sloan Foundation Scholarship. Um, got a job working for a really talented writer, obviously big name writer called Andrew Marlowe, and worked with him and his wife, Terry Miller, and both really talented writers, and worked with them for a couple of years. Um, Andrew had written Air Force One, um, Hollow Man, End of Days. His, uh, he and his wife have both won the Nickel Fellowship, which is how they met. Really cool story. And um, and so, you know, Andrew created the TV show Castle, brought me on as a writer's assistant, um, which was great. So I got to learn on that show how that kind of happened. And along the way, I just kind of realized, you know, I just wasn't writing as much as I, as I believe a writer needs to write. I'm a, I'm a good writer. Am I a great writer? I don't necessarily think so. Um, but I knew I could, like, I could have made a living, I think, especially 20 years ago or 30 years ago, like, doing okay. Or at least I would have been a struggling writer, you know? Um, I knew how to kind of speak writer and all that kind of stuff. I was like, oh, okay, no, I speak development, I should say. Um, and a friend of mine, a guy called Bobby Sablehouse, who I'd known from an internship we'd done at Village Roadshow, um, came to me and said, hey, I'm a producer. And I know you, I worked with you. He'd worked with me as a writer. He's like, I know you also have a whole bunch of ideas. What if we produce those ideas and that you're not writing? And I think I was joking that the, 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 I should have known I wasn't a writer because I was like, that sounds great for someone to write my ideas. Mm. And so started doing that and really discovered that's what I loved more than being a writer because I just didn't have the discipline. I wasn't writing three things a year or at least two things a year. I was writing maybe one and a half things a year. I just didn't have the discipline to face the tyranny of the blank page, to get in there and be like, oh my God. But when I was working, when I got in the room with people and, you know, I was like, wow, this is so fantastic. I love working with people and throwing ideas around. And so, you know, now I'm working on probably actively working on 20 to 25 projects, but I have like another 35 or 40 projects. They're just at various stages of this or that. And I love it. I love, you know, I'll go on, on tomorrow. It was actually quite a busy day. Monday is a busy day. I have like, you know, a 10 a.m. meeting. I have an 11 o'clock call. I have like a, a then I have a lunch. Then I have a 3 o'clock meeting. Then I have a 4 o'clock meeting. Then I have a 5.30. And those are all about, and not all of those are I have to read things, but I have to read, go home and read like four or five projects right now. And, you know, I also have submissions as a manager to read. But I really love that. I love being able to get in kind of the mix and to talk about, like, you know, just have a conversation about it. I think if I was a purely writing kind of producer, I'm like, here are my written down notes. It would be more intimidating. But for me, I, I'll go through the script on my iPad. I'll use Goodreader to annotate it. And then we'll go through the script with the writer or the outline or whatever wherever stage we're at and say, oh, you know, it feels like this isn't the most interesting way to this character. And I won't be like, I want you to do this. I'll just be like yeah, it's just not working for me right now. But like, maybe we could do something like this. And the writer will be like, oh, you know, 
that's not working for me, but here we'll, we'll kind of feed off of each other almost in an improv kind of way where we're kind of throwing ideas back and forth. And so that's what I discovered that I really, I really loved. And that's honestly where my, my energy, my excitement came from was working with other people in the room as opposed to kind of the solitary work that a writer does, which I, I deeply respect having done it myself. Uh- I uh, I want to leave the podcast making sure that the writers out there mm-hmm. get some tips from you. Okay, sure. what what do you respond to in a read? Mm-hmm. Um, what are some things that writers should know? Mm-hmm. Uh, anything that that you want to give them? Yeah, of course. You know. Um you know, the first thing, you know, this is, uh, I heard Jake Wagner talk on your podcast about this, and he, he kind of explained it quite succinctly, but, you know, the first thing, you're, what you're looking for is a voice. So I, I just signed someone this week who I'm incredibly excited about, the one who wrote the Michael Clayton kind of Chinatown-esque kind of script, and I was reading his script, and, and you know... Th- Everything was good about it, and he was clearly someone who'd done his research, who'd read a lot of screenplays. You know, he and I started talking when we met, and we're like huge Tony Gilroy fans, we're huge John Logan fans. You know, I love reading screenplays. I'm very excited about writers, and so when I read his script, it felt like someone who'd done a lot of that work himself. Um, and you know, I remember honestly reading a description of of uh, one of the the char- main character is is in line to board an airplane, gets a phone call, which basically says, "No, you need to go somewhere else," and then he leaves the line. And I remember it was, he was described. As is swimming upstream, going back through that line as you're boarding the plane. And like, I was like, wow, that's like... And there's lots of little things in there. And I'm not saying that those kind of flourishes are the only thing that are important, but it was dem- demonstrative of a person who di- wasn't just saying... He enters a room. He goes and talks to someone. Da, 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 da. He was like, okay, this is an experience, and I have a vision for this in my mind. And so when I met the writer, speaking to the second thing is, you know, I met him, and he was a really interesting, he had a really interesting point of view. He was a really interesting background. He's someone who went to Columbia um, for journalism school, was a journalist, had also gone to law school, um, and that wasn't the right fit for him. But, you know, so a really interesting narrative, a really interesting brand. And I think that that's actually something that's quite important, the in-the-room aspect. I mean, look... Marlowe and I have talked about it. Uh, another good friend of mine, a guy called Will Bell, who had a really high-ranked script on the blacklist called L.A. Rex, and then went on to write Gangster Squad. Um, we talk about it a lot, is the idea of, of how good you have to be on paper and then how good you have to be in the room. Now, now don't get it twisted. The most important thing is to be a good writer. If you're not a good writer, nothing really matters. Sure. But, you know, coming into the room and having a, a point of view when you meet an executive. So for my friend Will, um, he'd written L.A. Rex, which is based off his own novel. So that was interesting in and of itself. But he was a former LAPD um, homicide detective and worked in South Central for 10 years. So he had a really interesting, you know, that's the kind of person that you were like, okay, I want to, when that guy talks about work, writing a cop movie, obviously he has an interesting point of view. Um, or, you know, I look, you look at my a guy who I work with a lot, Ian Shaw, who wrote Capsule and Christo, and you know, he is a really interesting narrative. And I'm not saying you have to have, you know, he went and he, like, he didn't go to college immediately. He went, you know, hiked around the world, traveled around the world. I think he, like, hiked the Himalayas. I think he was, went to Everest Base Camp. And so that's, you know, he'll bring up, like, here's some interesting things. So I'm not saying you have to have an interesting life to succeed in the room. And my life was relatively linear. I went to film school. I came out here. But I think if you have an interesting point of view, and especially that informs your... It informs... You get to you in the room and you're like, okay, this first person feels special. Especially, they're writing about something that feels like they either, they speak, can speak to it in a way that no one else can. I mean, the, the simple way to put it is this. Is you have to imagine the, the executive is meeting 10 other writers, right? Let's just say it's 10. Probably more like five. Actually. Let's say five. And they're all really talented. They're all about the same level of talent, right? You know? 
And the question they're going to ask is, why should I believe in you? Because at the end of the day, this is all very ephemeral. You could hire a writer who costs a million dollars and has written Oscar-winning screenplays, and they could tank it. You could hire someone for Writers Guild Minimum who's only written one screenplay, and they could deliver an amazing, amazing script for you. So there's no guarantees in this business. So at the end of the day, when the writer... When the executive is trying to make a decision on who they should give, they should pay, pay six figures to. Um, what they're trying to do is, who's the person who makes me believe in them? And so, if you can come into it and not just be a great writer, but have a point of view, and so maybe it's not about brand per se, but it is about having a point of view on the material. And that would be one thing I would say that you, you if you're a sci-fi or a thriller person or action person or comedy person, you know, staying true to that brand and expanding. You know, if you're really good at writing. You know, thriller, and you're like, okay, now I want to write a wacky comedy. That's going to be weird to people. It's also going to feel off-brand. It's going to feel like your voice is, you know, kind of, you know, all over the place. So it's being smart about who you are and presenting. And so that's something that Patrick and I are talking about. Is okay, Patrick's really good at the script. The stuff that I've read is very, very good. Um, how do we take what he's already really good at and who he is as a person and put him in the best situation possible while also working on commercial material? So those are the two things that I think are important. Obviously, writing talent, but beyond that, figure out what your brand is, what your voice is, who you are, and how... Because when managers and producers call up, you're like, you got to read this writer. Okay, he's the next Aaron Sorkin, or he's this, or this guy used to be a cop, and now he writes cop movies. Like That's always obviously very simplistic, and it doesn't really matter if you have that... Ex- not, if you're a really, if you used to be a cop and you write bad cop movies, nobody cares, right? You have to be a good person. What's more important is being a talented writer. But if you have a point of view that's interesting, they've written this from a, from a certain point of view that I would not necessarily imagine, or they have an insight, or they, it's about you know father abandons his family and this you know character his father did abandon this writer his father did abandon his family. It adds an element that makes people get excited and a little more interested to talk to you. Got it. Thank you so much for that that piece of information, and I think that uh, that this whole podcast is really educational because, like I said, we've got we have writers on, yeah. but to have somebody who comes at it from your point of view, mm-hmm. I think will will help people start to brand themselves a little bit more, start to focus their their projects, maybe think about their projects with a little bit more of a commercial bent. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you very much. I Thank appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Um, is there, uh, are you followable on Twitter? No, you know, I, my social media presence is lacking. I apologize for that. I mean, we do have a website for my, for my, for my company, Bellevue. Um, so I don't have any of that stuff. No problem. No problem. Should anybody check out your website just so they yeah, can see more you know, about your they, projects? Yeah, there's anyone, you know, I mean, we have a, we have a, a general website on there. If you know, I'm always checking the blacklist. That's a website that I'm a big fan of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having worked with Franklin Leonard back in the day at Appian, I think he's done a phenomenal job with that website. Um, so, you know, I'm always looking at that for clients doing stuff like that so yeah I mean if, if there's some you know I, I don't know I, I'm looking for queries per se mm-hmm. but uh, you know if there's someone you know wants to be alert me to something that's on the blacklist for example that's something that's always a good thing okay all right thank you very much and then uh, and David Dapper David uh, yeah. what which of your many uh, podcasts do you want to to tell everybody about today? Um, I'm <clears throat> Excuse me. My uh, film discussion podcast is called Battleship Pretension. It's at battleshippretension.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at The Pretension. And uh, Pat, my husband, uh, just did a two-part podcast with you. We did a crossover. Mm -hmm. We did an episode of Battleship Pretension with Pat and Mike Siegel, and then Tyler and I did an episode of Rock Solid 
together they form one full episode. It's so you part have to one and part two. Yeah. Brilliant. We, we talked about our favorite songs off of movie soundtracks. Now, is it out yet? Yeah, they're both parts are out now. Excellent. So, so go to both Rock Solid and Battleship Pretension to uh, to to hear Dapper David Bax and my husband Pat Francis talk. And what was the actual uh, was movie music? movie soundtracks movie soundtracks soundtrack albums? Yeah. Okay. And you know, do you know about the little healthy fight we got into? Yeah, yeah you told me. Yes. About it. Yeah. You told me about uh-huh. it afterwards. Because I I was like, hey Pat, now that you have Rock Solid, this this podcast about how about we have a podcast about movie soundtracks? And he was like, Argh. and then he goes and does this with these guys. <laughs> you know, we sold you out. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to remind everybody to go to onthepage.tv. The TV class is uh, is on the site right now. It is Sunday, February eighth, from ten a.m. to four p.m. It will help you uh, decide what ser- what kind of series you're going to write, help you make decisions about the seasons within the series, help you decide what pilot you're going to write, and help you break story on that pilot all within the five hours. It's pretty intense, but we've been having a great time with it. So go check that out on onthepage.tv. I also want to say a quick thank you to two people who just donated to the podcast. One is... Simone Link. Thank you so much, Simone. I really appreciate your your donation of $25. Um, also to Kevin Compton. He also de- donated $25. And Kevin is an old friend of mine. I've known him since I was 16. <laughs> and uh, he hung out with like these really cool dudes in Queens, New York. And I used to take the train from Boston to really? New York to hang out with them because they were so cool and they were really into punk rock and they were really into classic movies <laughs> and they would show me these classic movies they were a little bit older than I was and uh, and I you know I, some of it sunk in the punk rock thing did not did not <laughs> but but they were the coolest so to have Kevin be listening to the podcast after all these years is just thrilling so thank you so much if you want to donate on the page just go to on the page.tv go to the podcast part and you'll see the little donation button thanks again for being here john i really appreciate it thank you for having me and thank you david oh, sure. thanks everybody for listening and have a good writing week <laughs>